We're only going to be covered the f covering these first 15 verses in John chapter 3. I originally was going to do the whole chapter. I was going to try to cover the whole chapter. Um, but I began, as I began to study it um, and prepare this message, I realized that, that just in the 15 verses alone, there's just a lot of good information there that we can learn from. There's a lot of good stuff that I believe the Lord really wants to show us and speak to us about. Um, now, if you've been you know, with us or if you've heard the previous messages, in the first two chapters we, that we already covered, John's main emphasis was how we can experience the light of God through fellowship. He told us that, it, that a Christian, as Christians, who are in fellowship with God, they will practice righteousness and will love other Christian believers. Now in this new section, John now begins to call us to experience the love of God as his children. So again, his emphasis was how we can experience the light of God through fellowship, and now how we can experience the love of God as his children. So in these first, fift first 15 verses, John's message will consist of these three things. The love God the Father has for us, how sin seeks to damage our relationship with God. And proof of a new birth is obedience to God and love for other Christians. Now, before I read, let's uh, ask the Lord again to speak to our hearts, our hearts as we uh, open, his, open up his word. Lord, now we sit before you and to hear from you, Lord. Or soften our hearts, open our ears, open our minds, our hearts, so that we may understand these words that you're speaking, that you're speaking to us personally about. Lord, show us how much you love us. Show us that there is just glory in having the glory of, of having a relationship with you. Continue to teach us how to love one another, how to love each other as believers. Help us, strengthen us as we grow and mature in our faith, Lord. May we see you now in this passage we're about to cover. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I said, 1 John chapter 3. Now, um, I'm going to go back one verse, chapter 2, verse 29, because it relates to what I'm about to read. So 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, and then it'll, I'll continue on to chapter 3. If you know that he is righteous, you know this as well. Everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Look at how great 
a love the Father has given us that we should be called children, and we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know Him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is breaking of law. You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who commits sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the devil's work, works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin, because, he is, because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he has been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. In my line of work, in what I do, we receive different areas of training from the moment we begin our academy. And one of those areas is um, detecting fraudulent documents. Because um, depending on in the, in the area that you work, you will be seeing a lot of documents, a lot of different types of Im immigration documents. So we receive periodic training on how to detect, how to look, what fraud document looks, will look like. But when they teach us these things, when we go through this training, they don't begin by showing us what a fraudulent document looks, looks like. Or they don't begin by, show, by telling us to, what to look for in a fraudulent document. First, they teach us what the real thing looks like. First, they teach us the, all the little things that would be in visas and passports um, and all these you know, different immigration documents. They show us what the real thing looks like. And then from there, they'll show us the fake stuff so that we can see, detect, and know even the slightest, well, the, the slightest things, you know, we, we can see what, you know, what is, how fake it is. And those, I'm not the best at it, but I know that there's some who are really, really good at it. And right away, they can, they can spot a fake document. The best way to recognize if something is fake is by familiarizing yourself with what is authentic. The same principle applies to our relationship with God. It's important that we know what a genuine relationship with Him looks like to be able to spot a fake one. In these first 10 verses, in these first 10 verses, John informs the readers of these four facts the relationship they have with God, the hope of that relationship, 
the case for that relationship and the evidence of that relationship. In verse 1, he begins by expressing to believers the relationship they have with God the Father and the glory of his love. Back in his gospel account, John wrote this. He wrote this in John 1.12. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul tells us later in Romans 8, 14 through 17, what makes us children of God. Now, if I'll, I'm going to be reading that to you if you can, if you're able to turn there. I'm going to be in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and again, here John and Paul is telling us what makes us children of God. It's going to be in Romans chapter 8, verse 14. All those led by God's Spirit are God's Son. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If you're a born-again believer, the glory of God's love has been given to you as his adopted child. Despite our imperfections, Despite our fallen nature, despite the fact that we will occasionally blow it and we will occasionally sin, He sees us and loves us unconditionally, just as a father would love his child unconditionally. His spirit living in you, if his, if his spirit is living in you, assures you of that truth assures you of the truth that you are his child however john tells us in the second half of verse one that as god's children we will be misunderstood by those who are in the world he writes the reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him you see in this world Christians are strangers. We're pilgrims because our Father God in heaven is greater than the gods of this world. So when we don't conform to the rules and standards of the gods of this world, we're not only seen as weird, we're not only seen as the odd ones, we're not only seen as the strange ones, but also the enemy. Now, the best way to describe it is imagine coming from a semi, I don't think there's a perfect family, but a somewhat functional family where there's discipline, where there's love, where there's 
structure where there's order. You know, kids are being, have clothes in their back and being treated right. There's just love in that family. Now, imagine staking that kid in a family where there's just nothing but dysfunction, where there's nothing but, and I, I know what that dysfunction, I grew up in a dysfunctional home, so I know what, that's, what that looks like. If you have two, then you know, you know what I'm talking about. But a Christian in this world is like that. It's like that function, a kid that comes from a functional family into a, a dysfunctional home. It's just odd. It's just strange. And then that family sees that child as like something's wrong with him. What do you mean you, you know, you do things this way? And why are you so good or, you know? But that's what it's like being in this world as a Christian. So in verse 1, John is pointing out the amazing privilege believers have been given to be known and called children of God. In verses 2 and 3, John tells us the hope and destiny we have as God's children. Now, although we're God's adopted sons and daughters, who we are now isn't who, will we, who, will we, who will we be one day. Who will we one day be? <laughs> that was a tongue twister. <laughs> you see, whether it's right after birth or after rapture of the state of the, of the of the church when jesus appears he says john says we will be like him because we will see him as he is now again turn with me to second corinthians chapter 5 follow along as i read and share to you what paul said concerning this 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in heaven, not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this body, desiring, desiring to put, our dwelling, put on our dwelling from heaven. Since when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we're in this tent, burdened as we are because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed so that mor mortality may be swallowed up by life and the one who prepared for us and the one who prepared for us for this very purpose is God who gave us the spirit as a down payment as a child of God one day soon you will be face to face with our Lord and Savior, and you will truly, you will truly, truly see him. Not with these eyes that we have right now. Not with these defective eyes, but with new, incorruptible, glorious, and powerful, powerful and spiritual eyes. This is the hope we have as God's children. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
this is the reason why it's necessary for you to continually walk in God's light and practice righteousness. Because as you do, you are being purified from all those undesirable elements that are hindering the relationship that he wants to have with you. And not only that, but it also keeps you from living the life that he desires for you to live. So the hope we have as God's children is being like him in in our new glorified bodies and our destiny with him in eternity with those glorified bodies. In verses 4 to 6, John presents the case for the relationship that we have with the Father. He does this by first stating how sin seeks to damage our relationship with God. He writes, everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is breaking of law. In other words, sin is lawlessness and an offense to God. It would be as if I invited you over to my house and I told you that one of my rules of my house is no spitting, no spitting in my house. Yet after you came over to my house, you looked at me and you blatantly just spit on the floor, right there for me, for everyone to see. It's offensive. You're basically, every time we sin, we're offending God. It's an offense to Him. And this is what we're doing when we break any one of His laws. And what happens, too, is that it damages our relationship with God. Because as I said, sin is, a, sin is offensive to Him. Even if someone were good at keeping all his commandments, but lied once. God doesn't see them as a liar. He sees them as a sinner. Understand that? Even if, even if you just stole a pen, a pencil from somewhere, he, and you kept the rest of the law for the rest of your life, he doesn't see you as just a, a pen thief or a pencil thief. You're a sinner. He sees you as a sinner. Here's, our, here's how James 2.10 puts it. For whoever keeps the entire law, yet falls in one point, is guilty of breaking it all. So although you, have, you may have never murdered, but you did tell a lie, you are guilty of violating all Ten Commandments. However, he counters that statement by telling his readers that they ought to already know two things. They should already know these two facts. Jesus was revealed so that he might take away sin. And there is no sin in him. These two facts are a guarantee to the believer that their sins have been forgiven and are no longer guilty of lawlessness. So now that God views the forgiven sinner as eternally innocent, 
everyone who remains in him does not sin because he will never hold future sins against them. Listen to what it says in Colossians 2, 13 13 and 14. And when you were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and in this uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. All. He used the word all here. It means we've been forgiven for all past, present, and future sins. If you trust in him, if you believe in him, if you accepted him into your heart and surrendered your life to him, he has forgiven all your sins, past, present, and future sins. However, the key phrase is everyone who remains in him. This is the phrase that a lot of people ignore. Those who say, you know what, I'm going to keep drinking, I'm going to keep, you know, sleeping around, and God still forgives me, and he's, you know, he will forgive me, and he, it's just, they forget about what it says here. You see, in, this, in, the, in the way this was originally written, John meant, what John meant is that everyone who remains in Christ does not live in habitual sin. If you remain in Christ, if He is your Lord and, you're, and the Holy Spirit is truly in you and you're abiding in Him, you're not going to live in habitual sin. You see, it's utterly incompatible for a new creation in Christ to regularly sin and be at peace about it. If you're a believer who is truly walking in God's light, the Holy Spirit that's in you will enable you to recognize sin and avoid it. Yet, when you do fail, when you do fall and you do sin, the proof that you remain in Christ will be evident by your repentance, confession, and confession of your sins. You know what I mean? It's yes, you may you may fall in a moment of temptation, but don't let anyone convince you. Don't be don't let the devil convince you that you've fallen out of favor with God that you're no longer in him and that he'll never forgive you and that you know all these lies that the devil wants to put in your in your in your mind in your heart don't believe it again you know if you remain in him and you want to continue to remain in him you will recognize that sin repent from it and what that means is just turning away from that sin and confessing it confessing it and then learning from it. On the other hand, John tells us at at the end of verse 6 that those who do live in habitual sin with no remorse or conviction demonstrates that they don't truly know 
and understand who Christ is. So in the case for our relationship we have with God the Father, it rests solely on what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you and for me. Now in verses 7 through 10, John provides three evidences of the believer's relationship with the Father that will keep them, that will keep you from being deceived from fa by false teachers. The first evidence, John says, of our relationship with the Father is righteous behavior. He says in seven, verse 7 again, The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. This means that as a Christian, you will, as a Christian, if you're walking in the light of God, you're walking as he himself is in the light. This involves being obedient to his word and showing love to fellow believers. So when you choose to do what is right, when you choose to, and I mentioned this before in, in, in the previous message, when you choose to do what is right, you are practicing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 4 verses 8, eight and 9 gives us a, special, a good description of what, the, of what that looks like. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there's any praise, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. Living righteously is an outward sign of an inward change. Knowing this will keep you from believing false teachers who may try to convince you that God is absent from your life. The second evidence of our relationship with the Father is our unwillingness to persistently sin. If you remember back in verse 4, John said that anyone who commits sin breaks God's law. Now, here in verse 8, he says, anyone who commits sin is of the devil. Again, he's speaking about those who don't know God and are living in habitual sin, who are persistently sinning. These people are of the devil because they're under his influence and are dominated by him. Since the time of Adam and Eve, and up until today, the devil has been sinning and influencing mankind to follow his lead and disobey God. However, and this is what he tells us here, and this is what he tells us next, Jesus came to destroy that influence. Jesus Christ came to destroy the influence of the devil, and he died so that we may be known, so that we may not be known and judged by our sins. 
if you are born of God, if you're really, truly a born-again believer, and as I said, the Spirit is in you and you remain in Him, you will not persist in sin. You won't persist in sin because there, there will be a difference between your old, unregenerate life and your new life in Christ. Yes, I, I don't deny it. I'm not going to pretend that, you know, it's not going to happen. But we, we are going to sin periodically. You may sin periodically. But no longer incessantly as the devil does. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed. You see, your unwillingness to persistently sin will help keep you from being deceived by those who are of the devil and attempting to lead you into sin. The last evidence, the third evidence of our relationship with God is that we have God's seed. The reason believers have an unwillingness to persistently sin it because, is because the Holy Spirit remains in them. The new birth, new life in Christ produces a radical change. But whoever does not live to do what is right is not of God. This is particularly true of one lacking in love for his Christian brother. This is what the evidence shows us. The difference between a child of God and a child of the devil is that the child of God has, the, has God's seed in them. This seed will keep you as the believer, as a believer, from believing the lies and falling for the tricks of the devil's children. Now with the rest of the time we have, let's, I want to cover um, verses 11 through 15. For this is a message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Unlike Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. This one who doesn't, the one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. Yesterday, many of us witnessed a visual display of hatred on TV. I saw it, and I'm sure millions of other people saw it. And I wouldn't be surprised if billions around the world saw what happened in Charlottesville. I was horrified. I was disgusted by what took place there. 
Now, my intent isn't to get political here. And, but what we saw was just a manifestation of the devil. It was, it was just pure hatred. Now, I've seen this before at rallies and, and you know, you might have seen them before on the internet with, you know, left and right and, you know, the, the protesters. But this one was absolutely ugly. And if you saw that car ram into those people, man, that was, that totally broke my heart. Hate. Pure hate. And this is not from God. This is what he means here that these people with this kind of heart, with this kind of attitude, with this kind of anger, aren't from God, but are, they're of the devil. They're being influenced by him. And I, I just want to say that it's very easy to point the finger at others and say, you know what, you're a hateful person, and you know, this and that, and, but we need to begin to examine ourselves. If we want any change to happen, if we truly want to overcome hate, first of all, we need Jesus Christ. We need that healing from Jesus Christ because only He can heal our hearts. When He comes in, He shows us who, what love really is, the sacri what sacrifice is. But again, once that happens, we got to look at ourselves. We got to look at ourselves individually in the mirror and say and ask, is hate in my heart? Do I hate this person because he believes a, a certain way? Because maybe he's a Muslim or because maybe he's um, a Buddhist or whatever. Do I hate this person because he looks different than me. He dresses different than me. We have to look at ourselves in the mirror and examine ourselves and see if there's any hatred in ourselves, any hatred in our, and if there is, as Christians, again, we've already seen, that's not of him. We need to confess that, we need to repent of that hatred. And we need to turn away from that and, and just ask the Lord for forgiveness. Now again, I know that we have our certain beliefs. I mean, I'm, I consider myself an American patriot. I love my country. But what I saw yesterday was just one of the few times that I felt really ashamed, really embarrassed about what was taking place in a country that I love so much and that I was willing to give my life for. And even to this day, I'm continuing to protect. Again, if there's hatred in your heart, check it. It was a reminder, what we saw was a reminder of man's fallen nature. 
and the extent and the extent of hate within the heart of those who don't know God. Now in this section, John explains an important characteristic that distinguishes God's children from those who are not. He begins by explaining that the mark of those who belong to the truth is genuine love for other believers. Now I really got into, really got in, in, in depth with this a few weeks ago about what that means. But it's loving other Christians, regardless of what denomination they're from, regardless of whether they practice certain things, whether they have different doctrinal practices. Those who have truly accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are our brothers and sisters. These are the ones that he speaks, these, these are the ones that we, he's saying that we ought to love. The gospel message these readers heard, believed, and accepted included the command of the Lord Jesus that those who believe in him should love one another. It's this genuine love that distinguishes believers from non-believers. In verse 12, John urges his readers not to allow themselves to fall into that category of persons who do not love fellow believers by using the example of Cain. Now what he's doing is he's referencing the Old Testament story found in Genesis chapter 4. And if you're not familiar with this story, Adam and Eve had two children. The first two children were Cain and Abel. Now as they grew up, as they became adults, they sacrificed and they offer, gave offerings to God. But after time, some time, Cain was furious that God found Abel's offerings more acceptable than his own. And in a fit of rage, he killed Cain, or he killed Abel. Cain killed Abel. John then explains that the reason Cain murdered his brother was because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain was offering these sacrifices to God. His work, these were just works of his hand. There was no purity of heart. There was no sincerity in them. He was doing them to earn God's favor. But Abel's, God saw Abel's works, his offerings as righteous. Because he was doing it, he was offering them with a pure and sincere heart, with love. The point he's making here is that those who don't know God are unable to offer anything that God finds pleasing or acceptable. So what he's saying is, don't be that guy. Don't be like Cain. If you remain in him, if you remain in Christ, you will be like Abel. 
whose offerings were acceptable to God. You see, God, as I mentioned already, God accepted Abel's offerings because he presented them to God with a heart of purity and sincerity. So whatever it is you're doing for the Lord, don't do it to earn his favor. Don't do it to earn brownie points. Do it because you have a sincere heart. Do it out of the purity of your heart. So this is why he says, don't be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. John is specifically referring to the unbelieving world. That is, people who are opposed to God as believers and who are under the power of the evil one. Anything or anyone who opposes God will also oppose and hate those who belong to him. We shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. However, we should be surprised when there is hatred among the body of Christ, amongst each other. Now, following his warning that the readers will be objects of the world's hatred, John tells them that a mutual love is what distinguishes them as children of God. A love for fellow believers is a basic sign of being born again. If you don't genuinely, genuinely love other Christians, then maybe you should question your salvation. But if you do, if you truly love even that Christian brother that may have offended you, that may have said something that you didn't like, if you're still able to love that person, then it ought to give you assurance. It ought to give you assurance that you're in him and that you're saved, that you're born again. He then writes, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. He may have had in mind Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount, where he talked about hatred, where Jesus talked about hatred. If so, then what he's saying is that to hate our brother is to murder him in our hearts. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. Every man who hates another has the venom of murder in his veins. He may never actually take the deadly weapon into his hand and destroy life. But if he wishes that his brother were out of the way, if he would be glad if no such person existed, that feeling amounts to murder in the judgment of God. Then, at the end of verse 15, he says, And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. What he's saying here is to live, is, is to live in the practice of murder or to have li a lifestyle of habitual sin or habitual hatred for our brethren, it's a demonstration that we do not have eternal life abiding in us and we are not born again. It's very easy for anyone to say, yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I'm an evangelical 
Christian, I'm a believer. It's very, I mean, talk to most people and they probably will tell you, yes, I'm a Christian, but in reality are not. Well, here are three more simple ways to distinguish the believer from the non-believer. If they believe in what the Bible teaches as true, if they believe that everything that's in the Bible, that the Bible is infallible, it's, it's in the inerrant word of God, and that everything he says in there, everything that happened in there happened, everything he says in there comes from God. If they show the love of Jesus to others, and if their conduct has been changed by becoming more like Jesus. So if you claim to be a Christian, then it will be proven true by those three distinguishing markers. But if you have doubts, whether you are, you don't have to leave here today having any doubts at all. And as I begin to conclude here, let me say this, experiencing the full measure of God's love and compassion can only happen by having a personal relationship with Him. You guys understand what I mean? It's, it's having that relationship of a father and son. It's really knowing Him, knowing what, because He knows everything about you. He knows what what moves you, what desires you have. He has a, you know, a plan for you. But he wants you to know him too. He wants you to understand him. You see, of all the personal relationships you ever had or will ever have, none will ever be greater than the relationship that's shared between you and God. So the message of John, of these first 15 verses is this the authenticity of a believer's relationship with God will be evident by living in a way that honors God and displaying love genuine love towards other believers obedience and love is proof of a new birth a new birth that makes you a child of God in a moment, we're going to pray and end in prayer. And, and if there's any here or any watching who want to have a personal relationship with God, I will lead you in a prayer for you to accept Jesus into your heart as your Lord and Savior. If you know and understand, again, what, he, what Christ did for you, and believe that he did that for you and you've never been born again if you never surrendered your life to Jesus I will give you you will have an opportunity to to do that so right now everyone just wants to bow their heads and close their eyes as we as we pray Lord thank you again for your for your word Lord, may we, 
may we just remain in you, Lord. May we just grow as your children. If there's a problem with hate in our hearts, remove it, Lord. Remove that anger and hate that's in there. We know that it's not from you. Let us see our brothers and sisters in Christ the way you see them, Lord. May we treat them as our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of what church they're from, regardless of their denomination. We just love them, Lord. Help us if we're weak in those areas and help us to be more obedient to you, Lord. We want to be known as your children. We want to be known as the salt and light. We don't want to look like the world. You, asked, you told us not to be like the world. May we just, may others see that difference. And may we not be ashamed of knowing you. May we never be ashamed of, of telling others that you're our Father and that we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that their sins will, can also be forgiven. As I said, if there's any watching or listening and the Lord is speaking to your heart, the Holy Spirit is tugging at you, and you're ready to surrender your life to God, just pray in the quietness of your heart, wherever you're at, just pray this. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know, I know that I've offended you. I realize that I fall way short. But now I believe and trust that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he's your only begotten son that came to take away my sin. I believe he is God. Lord, take my sins and give me your Holy Spirit. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I may follow you for the rest of my life. I believe and I that you have forgiven me. 
and that now I stand among those who are considered your children. Fill me, strengthen me, Lord. In Jesus' name. Lord, I pray for those who prayed that. And I ask that you surround them with good Christian men and women who will disciple them, who will guide them, teach them your word, your truth. May they find churches that teaches your word. And we all look forward to seeing them in heaven as part of the family, Lord. Well, thank you again for your word. Thank you for blessing us. Thank you for this time of worship. Guide us, strengthen us this week, Lord. We need it. And heal this country, Lord. May there just be a revival in this country. And we may understand that revival begins with the individual, with the individual changing, with their hearts being changed, Lord. Help us to love one another. In Jesus' name, amen.